Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, it is fair to say that we live in a competitive culture. We see competition in the workplace. We see competition in schools. We see competition in relationships. We see competition through the, the measure of followers or likes that we have. And I think in some ways it might be safe to say that we see competition played out most heavily in our society through the context of sports. We look at sports and we look at how they have gripped our society over the past several decades. It is, it is maybe an argument, but I would say it's, it's almost overwhelming to see that sports have taken over in a lot of ways. And more or less, the root of competition has taken over and manifests itself through the playing of sports. In the late 90s, early 2000s, when you wanted to watch sports, you had to turn on one of the major networks, and they would only play baseball, basketball, football games, some of the major sports. But there was one network in particular that wanted to present a new way of communicating sports. They wanted to, to, to communicate sports 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and so ABC created a network called ESPN. Matter of fact, they created a family of networks, ESPN 1, 2, 3, ESPN Plus, ESPN Classic, for those of you who can't get enough. And the, the, the trouble that they found as they began this, this project was, it was a lot harder to get some of the contracts for some of the, the more popular sports. It was difficult for them to get NFL football. It was difficult for them to get the NBA. And so what they did is they began to take sports that were maybe a little more obscure at the time and bring them to the forefront. To start off, one of the major sports that they began to, to, to play was, was PBA bowling, which any Walter Ray Williams Jr. fans in here? No bowling fans. Okay, never mind. We'll just continue. Okay. Another one that they did was, was, was billiards and, and, and darts, some, some games that you might see, uh, you know, played here and there, but not necessarily what most would consider a sport. Then they took it a step further and they said, okay, these people that are sitting around a table playing cards for hours and hours, we'll call that the World Series of Poker and we'll put that on and people will watch as these people just sit and look at cards and bet chips all day long. And I think one of them actually that sticks out to me that's the, the most peculiar in the world of sports is that of the spelling bee, where you have all these children awkwardly sitting on this stage, and they come to the, to the, to the microphone one at a time, and as they get there, they're asked some word that I have never even heard of before. And they'll ask for the origin, and they'll ask for it to be used in a sentence, and they'll ask for, for it to be pronounced a couple different ways, and then eventually they'll spell the word. And when the word is done, when they finish spelling it, they wait for what is seemingly forever for a little bell or for silence, which is ridiculous. So if you get it wrong, you hear bing, and it's like, okay, for me, that's the cookies are ready. Let's celebrate. For them, that's my, my hopes and dreams are over, and, you know, I have to attempt to leave the platform. But if nothing happens, if they just stand there, and there's a pause, and there's, there's, there's you know, blank space, then they know they got it right. There's no confirmation of that, and they go back, and then they go to the next round. But I think the one that, that gripped me the most, matter of fact, in the late 90s, early 2000s, is when it came to the forefront, was both disgusting but awesome at the same time. On July 4th, 2001, I sat down in front of the TV and watched for the first time uh, 12 guys sit below a sign that said Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest 
And I was amazed and disgusted at the same time at how they were able to just sit there and eat something that really isn't good. Like we eat them because it's traditional, but they're not delicious. And I, and I remember thinking about, you know, as I was kind of thinking about this message, thinking about what I was thinking that day. And I remember I was actually eating at the time. And I lost my appetite as I watched these guys eat these hot dogs. And so there's all these guys lined up, and there's some pretty big guys there, and they're all talking about, you know, their resume in eating, professional eating. Like one of them is like the, the I'm the, the king of England, like I've eaten the most hot dogs. And there's another one that's like the pizza eating contest winner. There's one that's eaten the most uh, hot dogs at Coney Island. And then there's this little guy, 114 pounds from Japan. He sits down, his name's Kobayashi. Okay, now let me just say, for me sitting there, I was like, oh, there's hope for guys like me. Like, yeah, all right, we can do this. And so the bell goes off and they're all lined up and Kobayashi does a couple things that are very different from everybody else. Number one, he stands up, which that's not something that you do because you're eating, you have to be seated, right? And so they're all sitting there, he stands up and he begins to just eat two at a time. He's dipping the buns in water, he's eating them and at the same time he's moving his body. I don't know if you've seen this, moving his body like this. And what I've read and what I've heard is that what he's doing is actually moving the food through his digestive tract. Like he's trained his body in a way to be able to cram as much hot dog in as he can. Matter of fact, they, they interviewed one of the other the contestants, the, the Coney Island King at that point. And, and, and he said that he was at eight and he looked up and Kobayashi had already eaten 30 hot dogs. Now the, the previous record, the previous year was 25. And after 20 minutes when the contest ended, Kobayashi had set a new record of 50 hot dogs. Now, this was on TV, this was, this was live, this was like the first time that had real, uh, you know, notoriety, and so people began to, you know, there was already some food-eating contests, but people began to, in restaurants, they used to say, okay, we're going to, if you can eat this, or you go to, you know, you go to a local place now, if you can eat the, the, the monster burger, or if you can eat, you know, this steak, this 32-ounce steak with potato and salad and everything else in a certain amount of time, you get it for free. All these types of things began to rise, and, and here's the deal. I think today, as we continue this series on vices and virtues, as we look at gluttony today, I think it's important that we realize that in some ways, this one vice has been taken from a place of being one of the seven deadly sins to a place that's not only like accepted or maybe just considered a weakness to almost being celebrated through the context of competition, through the context of sports. And so we've gotten from a place of saying, okay, this is wrong, to saying, okay, let's see how good we can get at doing this one sin, at doing this one thing uh, that we would call gluttony, or maybe we'd take that word away and just say professional eating or competitive eating. And so today as we walk through this, I think it's important that we realize that gluttony is something that's not just, you know, a, a, a struggle for some people. Matter of fact, it's not just for people that might be considered obese. When we look at gluttony, oh, uh, you can write that down if you want, but we're not there yet. Uh, gluttony is not just something that, that, you, uh, that you see a struggle for somebody that might be obese because here's the deal. Two-thirds of us, first of all, here in America are considered medically obese, but I'll say this as well. It's not just about the consumption, the overconsumption of food. It's about this desire, this want to have what I want right now. And so as we walk through this, gluttony is, is about overconsumption in some ways. It's the greedy eater. It's to gulp down or to swallow. Gluttony may be, a, a, you know, for thin people as well, it's, it's, it's not just about doing it all at one time, but it might be eating small portions in our own way. The definition, as you guys maybe already saw up there, is this. Gluttony is an excessive attention to or desire for food. 
a continual urge to indulge oneself beyond the point of their need or limit. And we, so we look at this, we see that this is basically the selfish act of finding our own way of nourishment. nourishment. Finding our own way of filling a hole that, that, is, that is in each one of us and saying, okay, this is what I want now and I'm going to keep going until I say that it's enough. Today we're going to look at the book of, of Luke. And Luke was basically one of the, the, the disciples of Jesus. And he wrote a gospel of good news about Jesus as he followed Jesus around. He recorded his miracles and his messages and all those types of things. And today we're going to look at chapter 22 from the, from the book of Luke. And in 22, uh, basically, uh, Luke records the, 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 the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and then within that, the Lord's Supper, this opportunity for, for Jesus to, to state his, his intention and for us to see the roadmap moving forward of all time of what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it looks like to remember him through the context of what we here celebrate at Grace Point the first of every month, and that is communion. That is the Eucharist. That is coming to the Lord's table and consuming the elements in remembrance together as the body and remembering and, and engaging in this means of grace of growing closer to Christ. And so as we look at this and we kind of move through it, I just want to frame it in this way. Jesus is basically using a feast. And as he uses this feast, he's doing so to point towards what he wants us to feast on as believers, as humans. Starting in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. In verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In 19 it says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, this is a mere meal, but it's also the, the, the thing that, combat, that combats gluttony for us and the understanding of, of what gluttony really is. Because gluttony is not just the act of eating. It's actually, it's a spiritual issue. It's something much deeper than the physical issue. It's a spiritual issue in which God wants to reach us. God wants to fill us. God wants to, us to be broken and to come to him. It, it is much deeper than that. You know, I think as I, as I talked about this uh, the last couple weeks as I was preparing for this message, I talked to several different people just about the context, and, and they said, well, you can be a glutton of a lot of things. You can be a glutton of, uh, you know, workaholic, or you can be a glutton of, of needing different things. And I, I do agree with that. But I think if we look at it in the biblical context, and if we look at even in, in the, the history of the Christian church, when we see gluttony at its best and we see it most related to God's solution for this specific vice, it's rooted in the context of food. 
And so as we walk through this message, I'm going to use food as the example. I'm going to use food, eating, consumption as where we're going to move and what we're going to do within it because, number one, I think it's important for us practically. But at the same time, I think we have more to gain, more to grasp from that. I will say there are other things that are, that are rooted there as well, but we're going to continue uh, with food today. John Cassius, uh, a theologian, defines gluttony as eating what we know will kill us. Gluttony is, is gorging oneself, whether all at once or bit by bit. The greater thing that we need to realize is this, in that bit by bit context, is that in some way, no matter who you are, where you're at, we are tempted in the form of gluttony. Even Jesus was. And so what I want to do here is, and you'll have this in your note guide, is to walk through a few different, five specific uh, um, practices or five specific ways in which we are tempted to engage in the context of gluttony. This was something that was put together in medieval times, and I've kind of uh, taken some terms and and brought it into uh, present day. The first one is, and this is in your note guide, supersizing. Supersizing is the simple act of eating more than we need. Now, this is the one, this is like the classic one that most of us would say, yeah, that's what gluttony is, eating more than we need. You know, most of us have, have probably heard of or maybe seen the movie Supersize Me, where this gentleman goes to McDonald's, and every time he goes, when they ask if you want it supersized, he says yes. Matter of fact, that's the reason McDonald's doesn't ask it anymore. But he says yes, and he's eating, and he's gorging himself all the time. Matter of fact, even on these, these foods that might not be the best for him. And as he walks through that, we see him get, you know, more and more unhealthy, and, and and, and, and his body is, is suffering from the fact that he's over-consuming all the time, even on, upon request. The second one is grazing. And grazing is, is, is basically snacking increases our frequency of eating, causing us to consume more than we need by the end of the day. I will say this message, when I got to this one, became very difficult for me to preach. Because grazing is the one where I am tempted most. And I think sometimes it's out of boredom, and I think it's sometimes because it's convenient, or sometimes because I have to walk through the kitchen to get to somewhere else. But I, I, I find myself grazing, so to speak, throughout the day. I find myself at a place where it's like, okay, you know what? I, I don't really have anything else to do. I'll just grab a handful of this or, or whatever, and I, I you know, just kind of eat in, instinctively because that's what you do. I, I was watching Survivor the last couple of weeks, and on Survivor, one of the survivors on there, you know, they're not eating much, they're on this island, says to the other one, when was the last time you went, th- you know, went the day without just eating something? That's just what we do. You, you know, you go to the break room at work, and there's some food there. You get a snack because somebody's birthday at school, or maybe you get home, you have a snack right after, you know, school or work, or, you know, in the evening, you eat something when you sit down to, to watch TV or to read or do homework or whatever it might be. There's just, this food is kind of involved in pretty much everything we do. I'll say this, like, when I go fishing with my boys, if I forget the snack bag, there's no reason to go fishing. Like, they're like, what are we even doing here? Like, why, why are we out here right now? I mean, uh, where's the scent? So, you know, food has, has integrated those things. The third one is this branding. Branding is seeking more lavish foods, developing a taste for certain brands. Most of us have probably seen like studies before, those experiments where, you know, there's, there's these people that they go to like a really nice restaurant and they'll bring in some like Burger King food and they'll just, you know, arrange it on the plate in a nice way and then they serve it and the people are sitting there like, oh, this is so good because they think it's from that restaurant. And it's not even about the taste anymore. It's just about the thought of how great this place is or how nice this food is from this specific restaurant. The fourth one is scarfing. 
Fourth one is scarfing. Scarfing is, is the desire or practice to eat too quickly, too eagerly. No longer stopping to eat, but eating faster and eating more. I think with this one, this is, this is kind of indicative of the, of the pace of life in which we live here in America. The pace of life in which we just go from one thing to the next. We kind of integrate eating into our, our commute to work, or we integrate eating into, you know, okay, we, we've got, you know, X amount of time, tw- you know, 15, 20 minutes between this and this. We've got to get the kids to practice. We've got to get here. And so we just, you know, you, you shove it in as quick as you can. And in so doing, what you end up doing is, first, you don't enjoy the feast, but second of all, you, you push through and you eat more than you should. My sister used to work at an all-you-can-eat buffet, and she said people would come in, sometimes even at lunch, and they would eat as much as they could until they were stuffed, and then they would sit around for three or four hours, and then they would eat again, two for the price of one, and one of them even joked with her, you've never made a penny off of me. And I thought to myself, that is, that is, that is the, the, you know, the pinnacle of scarfing. And the fourth, or the fifth one, excuse me, is this, special ordering. Special ordering is wanting it our way, being finicky. C.S. Lewis says, gluttony of, de- of delicacy, not of excess. And the concept here starts to, to, to maybe circle back around and help us to see that it's not just about the food, but it's about the desire. It's about wanting what I want when I want it in the amount that I want it to be. And so as we see all of these, it's, 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 it's becoming less about the actual consumption of food and more about this idea of doing it my way in the way that I want it done. This is where it becomes a spiritual issue. And the next point in your, your note guide is gluttony is our appetite to crave more than something that it was designed to give. Now, Psalm 34, 8 says that taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. The trouble here is we see that sometimes we attempt for food to be what we taste and see what is good and not the Lord. Sometimes we engage and we're looking at gluttony in other ways in work or we, in, in leisure time. And those things will not sustain us. Those things will not give us the, 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 the satisfaction that God wants to give us. And so what we do is we, we allocate or we, we say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow this thing to be what fulfills me. This thing to be what I, what I look forward to. And we overconsume in it or we do so in a, in a poor way. And at the same time, we neglect what what God really has for us on the other side. I will venture to say that Adam and Eve were the first gluttons. We have them to thank for allowing sin uh, to, to enter into the world. We have, we have them to thank for all these, these, these thorns and mosquitoes and all the things that we have to deal with here today. But I'll say this right now. I, I think at the same time as we move into it, there was a, there was a, a measure at work where Satan knew a specific way in which he could get to the heart of Adam and Eve. And he did so not just through the stomach, but also through the spirit, through the mind of these individuals. It's this lack of restraint, this refusal to say no, in which Adam and Eve stepped into that caused them to fall. Gluttony is rooted in the spirit of ingratitude of ingratitude, not being thankful for what God has given. And, and the, the lie that, that Satan told in this specific passage was that it's not how delicious this food is going to be, but it's how this food is going to shape and change and fill you in a way that you never imagined from this magical, mystical tree. They wanted to be filled by the creation rather than the creator. At that point, they took what had been created and what was beautiful to look at 
And they said, I'm going to consume this in a way and neglect the creator, the real power from which I'm supposed to be grabbing or I'm supposed to be moving forward. So why the fruit? The devil separated food from its creator and in the process subtly conferred upon food some sort of mystical power. In Genesis 3, 1 through, 1 through 7, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, God, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must, eat, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6 says, Then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was like her, who was with her, excuse me, and he ate it, <clears throat> and he ate it as well. And verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so I read this right here, see that food would not satisfy them. Food does not satisfy us, and it would not glorify them. It does not glorify us as well. The power didn't come from the Creator in that, in that moment. The power came for their change in their, because of their hunger. I don't know how many of you like to go to the fair. I, I appreciate the fair. I like to go to the fair. I, I enjoy going and, and engaging in all the fun things that, are, that there are to do there. But the thing that I enjoy most is eating some food. I, I, I remember going to uh, a, a fair um, in, uh, in Circleville where I previously lived. And there was parades and there was lots of fun things. But if, if I didn't get the steak on a stick, uh, it, it wasn't worth it to me. It almost didn't make the event. Like it was, it was kind of like that fishing thing. Maybe I gave those jeans to my kids. I don't know. But on that, that whole uh, concept, it was, it was about that. And I think sometimes what happens is we, we, we put food in a place where if we don't get what we want, if we don't get the amount that we want, if we don't get this, this specific thing filled in some ways, then we're not fulfilled. Gluttony began in the garden. And in Luke 22, 7 and 8, we'll back up to the original passage. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat at the Passover. They were preparing for a feast. They were, they were preparing for this, this feast that was going to celebrate that, 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 that God had passed over, passed them over and saved them because of his, his grace and, 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 his, and his justice. And because of that, they were, they were taking time to feast. So in and of itself, feasting is not wrong. However, if you feast every single day, every single meal, then the feast in and of itself loses its purpose. It'd be the same thing as celebrating your birthday every single day. Yeah, that's great. We get to celebrate every single day, but eventually, why celebrate your birthday? In essence, what they were doing is celebrating on the context of saying, okay, we're celebrating who God is. We're eating together on the heels of fasting and realizing that this cycle of fasting and feasting is a way in which we see and understand who God is and gain our sustenance, gain our nourishment from him. 
This is not fully understood or engaged through engagement until the New Testament, until the New Testament, until the New Covenant. And we see that specifically through the context of Luke and 22 and his recollection and his recording of communion as Jesus brings to light what this new covenant really holds, what this new covenant really reveals. Looking at the Lord's Supper, it's, it's interesting for us to see that food will never satisfy our spiritual appetite. And the next point you'll have is the glutton may never see the grand purpose behind the meal. He may eat only to satisfy himself rather to, to, than to be replenished for something that exceeds eating. In this case, we see that they didn't realize, or, or they realized, the disciples, I should say, realized the fact that this meal was for something greater. It was to celebrate something greater. And the responses to the glutton is that of self-control. Self-control is the response. In Luke twenty-two fourteen and 15, it says, when the, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. I think what happens sometimes is we begin to see these actions. When I say self-control, the first thing we go to is like self-help. Like what are the steps I can take? What is the routine I can get into to to fix all this? When in essence what's happening here or what we're seeing is it's not about self-help, but it's about this understanding that yes, we do need to show up. The disciples did show up for the Passover meal, but within showing up also is this understanding that God has something greater for us. In Titus 2, 11 and 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to us all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Yes, we do need to step forward and take the example. Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted by, by Satan, one of the temptations was literally turn these rocks into bread to nourish yourself. You are hungry. Eat these. And as he combated that, he said, no, I will not. I, 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 will, I will stand upon the truth of God. I will stand upon the word and, and even quoted the word of the scripture. And at that point, what he was saying is it's not about this physical hunger that I have, but it's about gaining my nourishment for something greater. That's the example that we have. And that's the power that we have that goes with us, that goes uh, before us and behind us. But here's the deal. When we look at self-control, we need to realize through the example of Christ that it's, it, it's a holistic matter. We need, we need a holistic vision of holiness that incorporates the physical body. And the context in which I'm saying this is that it's not just about you know, a fragmented part of our life. If I can just mentally understand this or, or, or maybe if I can get close enough to Christ. No, sometimes it takes action. In every case, in a holistic plan, it takes all of our being. It takes our spirit. It takes our heart. It, it, it takes our, our, our physical body. All of those things are included. And so with this, we see that Jesus is saying, okay, be like me. And holiness is basically being set apart. Being set apart from the world and becoming more like Jesus. It's this process. That's kind of a, a small definition of it. In verse 19 and 20, here is the example. Here is the, the reality. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He illustrated this sacrifice, but here's the thing. It included his physical body. Because at that point, he was basically saying, it's going to take my physical body 
A sacrifice of my physical body to fulfill, to bring to fruition this, 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 this instance, this understanding. And what he does at that point is also calls his disciples and then subsequently us as followers, disciples, to follow in those footsteps. For us to be part of it as well, it's going to take a sacrifice of our physical appetites, our physical bodies. So here's some steps, and these are not one, two, three, and you're fixed, but these are some specific steps that I think will help us to reframe what the actual challenge is and how to push into it. The first one is this. Uh, First step towards self-control is to sacrifice our bodies to God, understanding he intended them to be a tool for the building of his kingdom. It's not about us. It's not about our desires. At that point, it's this this direction, this 180 from going from here to here. And at that point, when we sacrifice our bodies as being a tool, we say yes to God and we say no to self. When I was in shop class in high school, we had to take a quiz on all the tools. And if you used a tool in the wrong way, you would get in trouble. And I remember one of the students breaking a tool because he used it in the wrong way. And he got in trouble, and, and then the tool went to the shop master, and he fixed the actual tool and brought it back. And after the student was able to, to learn and to grow from that, he gave the tool back to him, and the tool was able to be used in the proper way, in the way that it was intended to be used. And I think sometimes we have to go through this measure of brokenness or understanding to go into the hands of our shop master so that he can fix us and mold us and make us new so that we can go back out and be able to reach the world and work on the world and help in the world around us. He wants us to be a tool of him. The second one is, as we begin to learn about the place of our body, our spirituality, we must couple that knowledge with the second step, the practice of confession. Because here's the reality— Whether you define it in a different way or whether you celebrate it through competitive eating, whatever it might be, gluttony thrives on denial. Through comparison, through denial, but gluttony thrives on this, okay, it's not me, I'm not the one, or this isn't something that I deal with. And the sub-point under that is our deliverance usually begins with the admission that we have a problem in this area. So here's the reflection point. I've listed five earlier on in this message, and you have them in your notes. My, my, my challenge or encouragement is to look through those and see, is there one, is there two, is there a few that I struggle with, that I am easily tempted, a place where Satan attempts to get me in a way where I am filling this nourishment thing with what, with what, uh, with what, um, what, what the devil might have me to do rather than where God might want to nourish me. And the last one, the third one is this, the, dis- the discipline of fasting must be coupled with the cycle of feasting. Now, I think we've lost something in, in our world and in-, in-, in society in that we feast all the time because we don't have the opportunity to be able to fast, or we don't have the opportunity to be able to celebrate right because we don't fast. And the subpoint of that one is fasting, in fasting we choose the soul over the body, nourishment of the invisible. I think understanding this, this whole concept is important as we realize the overarching linkage, this holistic matter, it's, and as we demonstrate by Jesus, he shows us that this isn't just some difficult or even simple diet. Instead, it might cost us our life. And sometimes I think in the church, we kind of lose the game in, in the fourth quarter because we get to a point where, okay, we've gone through the process of salvation, but we've, we, we've not gone to a place, you know, salvation is that encounter grace, but we haven't gone to this place of, of, um, of sanctification or getting to a place where we are, we're giving back, we're allowing Christ to lead our life, that growing in grace and then being a grace giver. 
But when we find our identity in Christ and we, we look to him for, for truth, all of these things that, that we might become a glutton to, they begin to fade away. They don't, they're, not our, they're not our driver anymore. Instead, Christ is our driver. And so the final point is this, or final thought. People who practice self-control have their eyes on things that are more compelling than their appetites. People who practice self-control have their eyes on things that are more compelling than their appetites. When you say yes to Christ first, when you say yes to him, it makes it much easier to move forward. And the sub-point, the last one is this. It is much easier to say no to something when you've already said yes to something, or I'll venture to say someone else. And so at this point, as you move forward, at this point in our lives, when we look at our appetites, our appetites should be centered around Christ, and in so doing, he, he can recalibrate and put us in a place where we can understand and know him better. At this time, I'm going to dismiss Watertown. And then we're going to sing a song here together. And as we do, I encourage you to reflect upon where your identity is found. I encourage us as a body to reflect on who God is and what he's done for us. And how he's shown us an example and the deliverance of the way and how we can move forward practically and spiritually within that.